Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with multi-Grammy nominated band leader and drummer Bobby Sanabria. We had a good talk about his 2023 album Vox Humana. So on the heels of their 2019 Grammy nomination and their 25th anniversary, Bobby and his multiverse big band return with their most ambitious work yet. Along with the music, he is a documentary film producer, educator, activist, and band leader that is a native son of the South Bronx. His story is fascinating. Enjoy this interview. Cool. Hey, Bobby, it's great to meet you. Thank you for taking a minute out. Oh, man, thanks for the opportunity to share my thoughts and talk about the new work. Yeah. Well, before we get into the new work, you know, it's been quite a thing with COVID for the world of musicians. And I'm curious, you know, now that the world's waking up three years later, how did you survive it? How has it changed the way that you approach things now? Well, I mean, we just had to uh, adapt and adopt the new means of, of communication in terms of transmitting music, which was like doing these, uh, what I call Brady Bunch types of videos that everybody was doing, where you see uh, musicians performing on multiple screens, etc., and putting together music by piecemeal. And since I run the Bronx Music Heritage Center, I'm the co-artistic director, along with my wife, Elena Martinez, we switched to doing things remotely as well. We would uh, do remote concerts, live stream them in the venue, uh, which is a beautiful art gallery space. And we'll be moving to a new 250-seat theater called the Bronx Music Hall, which will be finished by midsummer. So we could talk about that more later. But uh, we did that, live stream concerts. I did a lot of live stream concerts. I would get called to do things like that, record for people, Etc. It was it was a, quite an adjustment, uh, to say the least. Uh, I think the people that benefited the most from it were the people that run these companies that make microphones, uh, cameras, you know, video cameras, etc., to transmit all these of these this live stream content that everybody was doing, and uh, people became savvy with it. Uh, of course, young people had a uh, had a one up on my generation because they they're always dealing with technology all the time i have to <laughs> frequently call my son hey son well how do you do this how do you do that etc and he laughs and then shows me etc etc so but uh we survived and and we're thriving now so uh, everybody it proves one thing that people hu- were hungry for live music and we actually did with the multiverse big band some live concerts sponsored by the city. Uh, we did one major outdoor one. Uh, of course, there were COVID restrictions for the audience. Uh, it was, for me, it was strange seeing people sitting apart, like eight feet apart, six feet, you know, that kind of a thing, and uh, wearing masks and all that. But uh, I, we, as, as I said before, we survived and we thrived. So you got a brand new album out, The World's Waking Up, Vox Humana. I'm curious, how does it feel, you know, to have this album come out? And, and what went into it? What artistically went into this project? Well, the, the, the project is really autobiographical. Every piece of music has something to do with my life at a certain stage in my life. For example, the first piece, Caravan, which is a, it's kind of considered a war horse in terms of uh, jazz composition. It was written by a fellow Puerto Rican, Juan Tizol, for the Duke Ellington Orchestra back in 1936. By 1937, every jazz musician all over the world was playing it. 
and it's been done numerous amounts of times, but I think we've recorded the definitive, most exciting version of it because we used authentic Puerto Rican rhythms in it, representing Juan's Puerto Rican heritage. And tunes like Spooky, you know, I remember that tune from when I was a kid growing up. Mike uh, Sharp, the, the uh, saxophone player, he played alto and tenor. He was an R&B uh, a guy, and he, you know, it was an instrumental hit when I was a kid in the late 60s. And then it became a hit again with the classic Swore who wrote lyrics to it. And then it became a hit again in 1977 with the Atlanta Rhythm Section, uh, who did more of a rockified version of it with dual electric guitars and a keyboard solo. And Janice Siegel brought the tune to me, kind of reminded me of it. She had done a demo with Christian McBride in a small group setting. I said, man, this will be perfect for the multiverse. We'll blow it up and bring out the Latin elements in it, making it a you know, authentic cha-cha-cha, but really funky R&B elements, et cetera. And she knocked it out of the park. So that's how things transpired. But the real reason this album was done was because of COVID. Um, originally, we had planned to do an album in tribute to my ancestral homeland, Puerto Rico. And uh, we had a three-night engagement at Dizzy's, all set to go. We were going to record the last night as we did our previous album, the Grammy-nominated uh, West Side Story Reimagined Project. And then COVID hit, and I was praying, please, that don't cancel the date, and they canceled the date. <laughs> so in that interim, between then and June, when we recorded this last year, I started thinking, instead of doing an all, all album of... Uh, tribute to Puerto, to Puerto Rico through Puerto Rican composers, i take some of those tunes, but then do all these other tunes that uh, are autobiographical. And I've always wanted to do an album with uh, three vocalists. And the thing was, which three vocalists? I never could find the right ones. Then I started thinking about Janice, and Janice had always told me, hey, call me anytime you need me. You know, Janice is a legend in our industry, with her work with the Manhattan Transfer. She's got 10 Grammys. So I called her, and she said yes. And then uh, I thought of Antoinette Montague, who I've worked with. She's a tremendous, she's like a queen of the blues and jazz, and she's worked with the Ellington Orchestra. And I've performed with her on many occasions as a side person with her as her drummer. And she said yes. And then I, Jennifer was a student of mine, uh, like, 20, excuse me, yeah, about 25 years ago, which is the celebration of this, this part of the celebration of this album, the band is 25 years old. She was a student of mine at the new school, and she's half Puerto Rican, half Dominican, and she's a musical polyglot. She sings in French, Italian, Brazilian, Portuguese, Spanish, and English, of course, and she's a fabulous vocalist who, you know, I always said, man, Jennifer's needs a platform for people to really get to know her because she's under the radar. The, some of the musicians in the band, you know, they go, oh, man, you're going to get three women singers? They're going to start catfighting. And <laughs> I go, no, no, these are mature, professional women. And I was right. They, they, when the first rehearsal happened, everybody, they both all fell in love with each other. They're great friends now. And, and the result is, this, I think, our best work yet to date, this album that... Uh, it's quite different 
than the other albums that we've done. We've always featured a vocal track or two on my previous big band albums, but this album is completely all vocals. So I think people are going to be taken aback. And uh, there are three great jazz improvisers as well, as you can hear on the recording. So they're not not slouches in that department. So the other aspect of this is that, you know, live shows are picking up, things are happening. Talk to me a little bit about your itinerary surrounding this album and just in general with as the year opens up, the warm months are coming. How's everything opening up for you now? Well, it's strange. Like I said, we did, we got called to do several gigs over this three-year period with the COVID, which kind of surprised me because this band is at full strength. It's 24 musicians. 21 uh, instrumentalists and three vocalists. So that's 24 people. So it's quite a massive undertaking. But we've gotten to play in Europe at the Verona Jazz Festival. We've got to play jazz festivals in the country here, like the, at the Ravinia Festival uh, in, uh, in, in, in the Chicago area and other places. So, but that, that said, uh, book, booking a band of this size is an immense undertaking. So the, the, our appearances are few and far between, but when they are, when we do do them, they are, you know, like uh, monumental events, to say the least. I think the biggest thing we did, one of the proudest moments of, was when we did the music of West Side Story Reimagined, our previous work. We did that for about, uh, about 15,000 people at Lincoln Center. Um, that was back in 2018. And then we just, we did a concert uh, in July uh, of last year at Bryant Park, which was uh, videotaped. So uh, hopefully you'll be seeing that soon on PBS. So that, that uh, so, but my thing is that uh, even though I have a quartet, a quartet doce and a, uh, Tech called Ascension, and those groups obviously are easier to book. I'm always looking for opportunities for this, for the Multiverse Big Band, because it is a, a wondrous thing. And we've done school concerts, <laughs> believe it or not, where we've been hired to come into a public school and perform a concert. We recently did one at the Dalton School in Manhattan. And what better way to get kids involved to expose them to great jazz? and Latin-oriented jazz than through a big band. It's the most powerful means of expression for this music. And from the first tune that we played at the Dalton School, those kids were standing up going crazy. And, of course, at the end of the concert, many of them come up to me, Mr. Sonabe, where can I hear more of this music? I've never heard it before, et cetera. And YouTube is a great vehicle for teaching young people and getting them involved in this kind of music because... It's uh, immediate, and uh, there's quite a few, there's hundreds, thousands of examples of great artists playing this type of music on YouTube. They just don't know who the artists are and where to go, so some of them have never heard of people like Tito Puente, who are iconic, or Machito, uh, who was the first, uh, the Machito Afro-Cubans, the first band to fuse jazz arranging techniques with uh, Afro-Cuban rhythms, or Brazilian artists like Ayeto Moreira, the great drummer, um, so there you go. Beautiful. So, you know, the one thing that's been hallmark about you is longevity. And 
you've always evolved. You've always kept your sound top-notch. How has how that been for you? What has been the key to longevity and staying relevant for you in your career? Well, the one word is persistence. <laughs> I mean, that, that's basically it. I mean, because there's so many talented people out there, et cetera, but they give up for whatever reason. So I've always been persistent. But, and also the key to me, my longevity has been versatility. As a drummer and a percussionist, I can fit in any musical situation. I've done even country western gigs, believe it or not. A Puerto Rican kid growing up in New York City in the projects. <laughs> so I've done every kind of gig you can imagine, playing timpani in a symphony orchestra and orchestra percussion to playing brushes and doing train beats on a country western gig to, you know, obviously hardcore Afro-Cuban uh, music in a dance-oriented context, what we call uh, salsa today. Salsa is just Afro-Cuban-based dance music, the way we play it in New York City with a very aggressive uh, attitude, especially the Puerto Rican community who adapted the music, adapted it, and kept it alive after the Cuban Revolution. So the key is uh, persistence and versatility. That's, that's, those are the two hallmarks of my career and, and uh, anybody else that, that has lasted as long as I have. And, of course, continue to grow. And I was very lucky because I grew up with so many styles of music uh, in my household. My father was a very, Jose was very eclectic in his musical taste, and I was the beneficiary of that. And we had great radio at the time when I was growing up, and I was the last generation to see and hear jazz on TV. I got to see Duke Ellington on TV on shows like the Ed Sullivan Show and Buddy Rich and Tony Bennett and Count Basie. And I, and I fell in love with the Beatles just like everybody else did. But I fell in love more with the drummers like Sonny Payne and, and Buddy Rich and all these other great, incredible drummers. And then later on in the jazz rock era, drummers like Billy Cobham, who's been a big influence on me, and Harvey Mason, Steve Gadd, Dave Garibaldi, I could go on and on. the great percussionists like the master timbala player, master Tito Puente, who really blew my mind. I saw him live when I was 12 years old. He did a concert in front of the projects that I grew up in, the Melrose Projects, on the corner of East 153rd Street and Cortland Avenue. And that's when I decided, oh, man, I got to do this for the rest of my life, be a musician. And, of course, my cultural background, I'm Puerto Rican, growing up in New York City in the South Bronx, what they call a New York Rican. So um, I saw the birth of hip-hop. I saw when cool DJ Hurt first came out with the Technics turntables. He used to go to high school right across from my projects complex. Uh, he went to Alfred E. Smith Bronx Vocational High School. So I saw when he uh, came out with those turntables and, so hip-hop was an outgrowth of people doing house parties, et cetera. Then they did them in, in community centers, you know, and then in the streets. So I saw all of that. And I'm one of the few jazz musicians that embraces hip-hop culture and rap culture. You know, many jazz musicians thumb their nose at it. But it's just part of the really uh, black experience, the African diaspora. Um, what I do is really, if you want to call it in a nutshell, it's African diaspora music. All of it is related from the blues to jazz to rock, funk, straight ahead swing, <clears throat> excuse me, 
and of course all the myriad styles of Latin music. Uh, it's like Carlos Santana says. Uh, he uh, has a beautiful quote. You know, he says uh, the people, the music that people call Latin music is really African music, and people have to acknowledge that. And of course, why is it African? Because of the rhythms. And there's a myriad number of rhythms <laughs> that we utilize on this uh, double CD set, as you well know. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, being at this for as long as you have. It's all fueled by love. I'm curious what you like the best about being a professional musician. There's so many aspects of it, from recording to being live and everything in between. But what is it that you love the best about it? Well, I guess the, the, uh, the visceral performance aspect of it, interacting with the audience on a visceral level. I mean, I've done every part of that versatility is that I'm a composer, arranger as well. But that's a lonely job, you know, like you're sitting down with a pencil in hand with score paper, you know, and nowadays you're doing it on a computer with either Sibelius or uh, with the other platform that's used to uh, write music. Playing, performing in front of an audience and seeing their visceral reaction to the music is a wondrous thing as anybody can tell you. So uh, that's the, the aspect that I love, and sharing with, uh, with the audience and getting to educate them too as well. My job is not only to entertain the audience, but also to inspire them, but also to educate them as well. And I'm kind of known for that in our concerts. I do a lot. I, I speak about the music. I do it not in a condescending way and not in a, in a pompous way, but I just give them enough information for them to go, wow, you know, uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that uh, uh, that tune Spooky was written by that guy, Mike Sharp or whatever, you know, that kind of a thing, and that he was Jewish, and then his name was really Shapiro, but he changed his name to Sharp because he was living down south, and people in the music industry told him, nobody's going to accept a Jewish R&B sax player. That kind of a thing. So these kind of factoids that I give about the music uh, helps the people to get deeper into it and appreciate it more. And when they do hear it, if we do we, we do our job right, and we always do, they'll get you know blown away <laughs> and come out also feeling. Besides feeling good, uh, they'll be conversing with each other, and uh, they become part of the multiverse. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Bobby, everyone out there has a perception of you. There's all these circles of people that know you, um, family, friends, fans, colleagues, but ultimately you're in control of your life. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? Well, uh, <laughs> wow, I've never been asked that. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a question a psychiatrist or psychologist would yeah. ask you on your first, on your first meeting. <laughs> you must have a background in that. <laughs> well, well, yeah, no, I just like to get to the heart of things. But, yeah, this is the free therapy session of the day. <laughs> I think that uh, my perception of myself is that I'm very passionate. I'm very uh, honest with myself and uh, what I do, and I want to bring it forth with total honesty to, you know, not BSing the audience or the music. And I feel that, and I'm very proud of my multicultural background being a Puerto Rican growing up in New York City, where if you grew up in New York City, you're going to be exposed to all these forms of music, particularly all forms of Latin music, particularly Afro-Cuban music, which 
really is the engine that drives New York. It's the pulse of the city through the Puerto Rican community. And uh, I'm passionate about my family, my friends, and also uh, getting the music out there and educating the public about our great musical traditions. Because talking on a deeper level, this music has been really invisible, and the culture has been invisible. And Latinos, for the most part, have been invisible in this country in every shape or form. People, you know, I always, I always crack a joke uh, about uh, if every Latino person didn't go, in New York City didn't just let's just let's just talk about the restaurant industry in New York City or across the country. If every Latino woke up and said, "I'm not coming to work today," there'd be no nobody would get fed. <laughs> so, uh, but we tend to be taken for granted and, and not even recognized. So through these albums and through my career, that's always been a driving force in me. And hopefully with this new re recording, uh, we can really chip away at that cloak of invisibility on a big level because instrumental music is always hard to uh, get to the general public. I come from the last generation where instrumental music had a chance to break through and, and possibly even on a big, big, massive level. For example, uh, that piece of music that I just talked about, Spooky, which was an instrumental hit. Then you got uh, hits like uh, Feel So Good by Chuck Man Jones. And then the music of, of, of uh, Kenny G, Songbird. These are all instrumental songs that crossed over and into the mainstream uh, mindset of the country. But when you have music with vocals on it, you have a greater chance to get, uh, to break through that barrier because people respond to vocals. It's, it's storytelling. It's on a visceral level. And there's some great stories on this album. For example, who would think that we would do a version of Christina Aguilar's uh, a pop hit, GD in a Bottle, her first hit. and uh, But doing it in a way that the Count Basie Orchestra would do it as a big swing uh, jazz number, you know, with solos and everything, and Janice featured as a, a jazz vocalist, uh, uh, swinging and singing and, and, and improvising. So <clears throat> I'm very curious to see what her reaction is when she finally gets to hear this our version of it. And she, I know she's a big jazz fan, so I think we'll put a smile on her face as, as well as the general public. I have no doubt. I know it did to me. And in our pursuit here of kind of making things a little bit more visible for you and the music, I really appreciate you taking time out today. Good luck with the album and live music and everything as we move forward. It's so good from my end of the microphone to see things waking up cats talking about new recordings and things happening so thank you for for taking some time out it's been an honor i appreciate it oh thank you for my, uh, allowing me to share my thoughts with your audience thank you so so much the album comes out may 12th and uh, the first single is coming out uh march 17th and then april 4th uh, uh, which is Car <coughs> excuse me caravan april 14th partido alto fantastic version of a brazilian rhythm known as Partido Alto and that classic composition 
as well comes out, uh, I believe, on April 14th. And uh, the full album comes out on May 12th. And it's a double CD set. So you're going to get more than 80 minutes worth of music. Uh, it's really, you know, it's like monumental. And it's done live. No job. It was recorded at Disney's Club Coca-Cola. So you feel the energy of the audience. You put this on, you'll feel like you're in the club. Rocking, it, rock, <laughs> rocking out with us. So thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in Puerto Rico, the Bronx, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Bobby for his time, energy, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, you can find Neon Jazz archived interviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, Enjoy the jazz, my friends. Thank you so much. Neon Jazz.